This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Most of us live lives that follow an arc. Oh, maybe there are some detours and bumps, but there's a singular storyline. Yet some live lives that have so many unimaginable juxtapositions from androgynous female rock stars singing with Elton John to being a trans man working at L.L. Bean, from a time of addiction to being an activist on behalf of grieving parents, from aimlessness to burning ambition, from an inability to love to a life filled with love, a wondrous life of magical highs and unbearable lows. This is the story of Sidney Bullens, the author of the memoir, Transelectric, My Life as a Cosmic Rock Star. Sydney, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited. Sydney is a friend of a friend, uh, John Mankiewicz, and was the one who encouraged me to pick up the book and interview you. And I'm grateful to John for having made that introduction. You know, there's so much to talk about here as I alluded to in the introduction, and I generally don't like to start with questions this big, but as I read your book, I kept wondering which was more defining for you, Sid, your burning desire to be a musician or the unsettling burden of living in the wrong body? Mm. <laughs> you would start out with a question like that. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you, know, you can't help. You read this book and there's like, <laughs> and I go, oh, no, it was his being a musician. No, it was. Wow. I, I you know, I want to say they were equally as as present in my mm -hmm. life. But the burning desire to be a rock star, let's put it where it is, is that yep. was, that's what I wanted when I was uh, when I was young outweighed it in the sense that there was something I felt I could do about it. I didn't mm. think there was anything I could do about my feeling like I was in the the wrong body. So I would have to say the the burning desire. But at the same time, I didn't I didn't, you know, cover up the fact that I felt like I was living in the wrong body. In other words, I didn't dress any differently than I would have right. dressed any other way for example. I didn't talk about it, but I did dress like a androgynous person. Well, yeah. And I think the, you know, one of the interviews I came across in my research talking about that was a an appearance of you and your band on, on American Bandstand in 1980. Hmm. And as I was looking at Dick Clark interview you, and Dick Clark, it was funny, Dick Clark didn't look very comfortable with himself in that interview, but I thought you did look like a version of Mick Jagger. You look like a female version of Mick Jagger. And I assume people connected to that. 
I don't think he was comfortable. And he asked me these questions. I'll get to your answer, but he asked me questions that I don't, that he would never have asked a male rock star. Like, do you think you, he uh, literally asked me, do you think you were wrong? That was the word he used to think you could become a rock star. Yes. You know, and then he called you like this little. I know this little bitty thing. Well, I'm five, eight and not that little bitty, you know? So I, 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 I think, I don't know if he was trying to fit me into a hole or what. And I, Honestly and truly, I didn't think about it at the time. I just responded to his questions as naturally as I could. And I was called the female Mick Jagger in many of my reviews during that time. So right. uh, I think it was, I was relatable in that sense. But, you know, one of the things that I thought about in, in reading the book crystallized when I watched that interview So I want to take a step back for a minute and then come back to that interview. So you go out to Los Angeles and you're 20-something years old and you end up at a party with Elton John. And I'm struck by either your chutzpah you know, I, I I shouldn't say this to a trans man, but by your balls to like walk <laughs> in there like that. Or what must have been your overriding talent for them to have responded so quickly and include you in his tour. So yeah. tell us how you met Elton John and <laughs> what role he played in your life. Oh, my goodness. Well. My, it, it is the famous, you know, was it Lana Turner or somebody who sat yeah. on the, 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 no, stool of the, drug in the drugstore. Drug yeah. <laughs> so that's my story here, uh, with Elton John, because I did crash a party where it was a press party for Neil Sedaka, who had just signed a, a, a record deal with Rocket Records. And I knew the studio owners where the party was being held. So I was there just to kind of observe this party from the studio uh, control room and not participate in any way. But I decided I was going to walk in. That's where the chutzpah comes in. And, you know, the young 23-year-old chutzpah. So I did walk into the room and I really had no intention of meeting Elton John. Excuse me. I just knew he was in the room. I didn't. Mm. I just wanted to be in the same room with him. So I walked in just wanting to be in the same room and he walked up to me. And that I think is the, <laughs> the story is that he actually walked up to me. I didn't walk up to him and introduced himself to me. And two days later, I was in rehearsals with him. Yeah. So what do you think was the element that Elton John responded to. What would Elton John say if I asked him? Um, well, I have asked him and, uh, you know, we, we've, we talked about it years ago. We haven't talked about it recently, but I think it was my look, you know, mm-hmm. the androgynous look. I don't know if he knew whether I was a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. And I think he wanted to find out. And, um, because I did have that look where you really couldn't 
tell. Yeah. And, uh, and you and were I, cool looking. It was a very cool look. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I designed the look, although I did. I mean, it was the mid 70s. So everybody wore bell bottom mm-hmm. jeans and fried long boots hair. And, and the 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 70s mane, I call it, you know, the of of hair, which I had back then, which I regret not having today. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> but uh, but I had the I had the look. I did have a look. And um but I he walked up to me, I believe, because he didn't know whether I was a man or a woman and he wanted to find out. Now he didn't know I was a singer. Hmm. Uh, I, we never talked about it. I didn't, he didn't know me from anyone. I was just somebody who happened to wander in the room where I didn't belong. It was all journalists and publicists and, you know, record company people. There were no fans in there. There were no, no musicians in there. So I wandered in and looked very out of place. Anyway, he apparently, from what I understand now, he, asked me uh, that night, that same night, his manager came up to me, Connie Pappas, who was on his management team, walked up to me during that party just a little while after Elton had introduced himself and asked me what I did. And it was then that I said, well, I'm a singer because I had been singing backup vocals for the year I had been in Los Angeles. And then a a little while later, I was about to leave and she walked up to me again and she literally asked verbatim, what are you doing for the next two months? And I said, I don't know why you want to go on the road with him. So I gather that was a Wednesday night. I gather that on Thursday, they better check and see if I can really sing. And because of some connections, which I describe in the book, I, I think they did find out yeah. that I could sing. And Elton... And I was in rehearsals on that Friday. Uh, it's just a kismet kind of thing. Just, yeah. a, a, you know, uh, one of those moments in my that changed my life. And, you know, the other, because the other theme that I noticed when I read the book is this odd juxtaposition between kismet and then you sort of undermining your own success. Like there would be, you know, there's that uh, early in the book, you talk about walking from a deal. And it seems like there were a number of times that you were on the precipice of something very important and then retreated. I mean, in hindsight, was that fear? Was that accidental? Because there's quite a bit of that. Yeah, and it's that's a good uh, a good read of my book, and I I talk about it in the epilogue a little bit. Um, some of the retreating was my own, and some was circumstantial. I, I don't know. I can't. You know. I mean, how much therapy can we be in to find out where mm. where it's uh, uh, self inflicted and where it's self protective? Because right. there's, a, there's a difference. And um, I, I think uh, part of my retreating from things that weren't circumstantial, because I obviously didn't retreat from going on the road with Elton John, yeah, or doing other things that that I did. But there were I did walk away from an early deal, record deal, just because I didn't know 
how to pursue it. I did. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know anything. I was naive. So some of it wasn't this whole big psychological thing. Some of it was just, I was naive and didn't know how to proceed through life. And that played a big part. I had no foundation on which to live. So that was from my early life. So that was part of it. I also didn't feel safe. Hmm. And that is a, uh, that's something I still deal with today. And um, and today, today. And do you think that comes from your parents or do you think it comes from something? Describe for us what your house was like. So you grew up in Massachusetts. I grew up in Massachusetts. My parents drank. That's what Mm. I'll say. Uh, Five kids. It was chaotic all the time. I didn't feel safe in my house. I didn't feel safe in my life. I had the extra added component of feeling like I was in the wrong body. And that really does play a part in it, even though I wasn't as conscious of it back in my early childhood as I became. It was this split in me that made me not know who I was, Mm -hmm. not to have kind of the foundation or the grounding of saying, this is who I am. When I would say to myself as a rebellious teenager, this is who I am, which we all do as rebellious teenagers, it was, I know who I am, but you don't. Yeah. (laughs) And and therefore, I have to protect what I know I am, even though you don't. And I kind of carried that theme with me to Los Angeles, to New York, to into the music business where I had to, I felt like I had to fight to be who I was. And in other words, people perceived me, for example, as a woman in the music business, as a woman who was trying to be a rock and roller, who was trying to get ahead in the music business. I didn't perceive myself that way. I perceived myself as somebody who was a rock star, who was a budding rock star, who could be a rock star, who had the talent to be a rock star, who had the chutzpah, who had the look, all of the stuff that you already brought in. I knew I had all that stuff and it wasn't bravado. It was just, okay, I got a look. Okay. I know how to write songs. I know how to sing. Why can't I go to the next step? And when I tried to go to the next step, there were obstacles. So sometimes the retreating was because the obstacles that came at me, I didn't think I could overcome. Mm. So Sid, when I hear you say that, it it brings together a couple of of thoughts. And and maybe they're really hard to tease out because they were so intertwined. So it's not unusual from what I've read to be the child of two drinkers living a seemingly normal life, right? So it's not easy to like call out a problem. So you feel a little destabilized, a little bit unsafe. You feel from listening to you a little unsafe that if you uh, disclose that you're living in the wrong body, that there'd be a risk of rejection or or any other of a million ramifications. And at the same time, 
there must have been a fair amount of misogyny in the rock world towards women. (laughs) So do you think one was overriding or do you think that the combination all led to the sort of journey that you ended up on? I think it was the combination. And yes, there was a ton of of, uh, misogyny in the music business. I mean, I remember sitting down at one label and the the A&R guy saying, well, you know, we already have one woman on our label. Mm. Okay. (laughs) You know, how many men do you have on your label? You know, it's (laughs) so, I mean, that was common. And believe me, I have many, many, many female friends in the music business who have encountered uh, that misogyny throughout their lives. And mm-hmm. uh, 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 even today, but better today than it was. But, you know, we don't have to go into a diatribe about country music or anything, but but um, but it's still there. And it was certainly mm-hmm. there back then. So I, but I do think it was the combination of things. And I, I had a bravado back then. Sometimes I look at <laughs> videos of myself performing back then and I want to you know cringe because I I really had something to prove back then mm. I mm. I wanted to show people that that I I could do anything I'm going to say this this way but this isn't exactly the way I thought I'm going to say I could do anything a guy could do yeah but it's deeper than that because I felt like a guy. I knew mm-hmm. I could dance as well as Mick Jagger. I knew that I had the guitar chops and the and the the writing chops and the vocal chops of uh, other people that as good as other people. I knew also that I was distinctive. That I had something different than there were no women like me out there back then. Right and. I was, and I'm not in any of the women's rock and roll history books, which kind of bothers me. But yeah, um, what the hell? But uh, but I was one of the, if not the first woman. Now there were groups. Fanny was a group back then, and they had, yeah. you know. So I'm not saying I was the only only person, but I was one of the only women back in the mid mid and late '70s to play electric guitar, write their own songs perform the way I did. I was a performer. I wasn't a, I wasn't a folk singer, you know, Mm -hmm. I wasn't, you know, Joni Mitchell or, or Linda Ronstadt or anyone like that, though. I loved both of them and all of them, but you know, I was a rocker and I, my audiences loved me. Mm -hmm. The middlemen and I say middlemen did not, they didn't get me. You know, it, yeah. Sid, as I'm listening to you, something something occurs to me that didn't occur to me while I was reading reading the book that you're saying now is, and then you can tell me that that's stupid and an unfair observation, but, you know, when I think about your performances, and there are enough stories of people that were 
just blown away. I mean, you live in a big world of being connected up and down the food chain in the music business. And there were was obviously enormous respect and appreciation for your talent. And it makes me feel like you were living your real you, like sort of superseding being in the wrong body by being the kind of musician you were or Mm -hmm. are. Yet people picked up on something that the dichotomy made them uncomfortable. Yes, you could be right. I, I think there was an uncomfortability. For example, there's a story I tell in the book about a record company president where I had just recently signed telling me that he wanted me to wear tank tops and dangly Mm -hmm. earrings. That's a quote, you know, from him because I kept journals and wrote these things down. So uh, I know, and, and I looked at him and, and he, and he didn't want me to write my own songs or produce my own records. And I right then and there thought no friggin' way. That's not happening. It's not happening. I can't, who I am. And that goes back to your original question about the retreating, you know, is that I got to a point in 1979 after this happened with this record company president, and I was about to make a new record, was making a new record for this company. And I thought, I can't do this anymore. I Mm. can't I, I I I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Well how why can't I just be who I am. Why can't yeah. I be that person who plays electric, a Les Paul, you know, who dresses and looks like a guy, you know, so what, yeah. you know? And uh, I mean, going back to the Dick Clark thing, if you watch that, I watch that video and I cringe, you know why I cringe? Not just because Dick Clark is being a misogynist jerk, but because I'm trying to be a girl in that interview. Yes. And 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 that's why I said I wanted to come back to it after we talked about some of it so it didn't seem out of order. But it was that interview that gave me a hint of the difficulty. I mean, I'm a little bit older than you, so I'm familiar with those times, you know, what that was like for women in any field. So it's not alien to me, but I was so, it was so clear to me in that interview with Dick Clark, he was uncomfortable with you being a girl that didn't act like a girl. And, and he was, you know, Dick Clark, the suavest of the suavest was fumbling. He like literally said, I don't even know what else to ask you. I mean, he literally said that. And I thought, okay. That's what was going on in the world then. Sid was trying to, you you were Cindy, Mm -hmm. and he wanted you to either be a girly girl or he couldn't deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. And check, 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 check. I mean, just check (laughs) off the list, you know, and, and again, back to the retreating. I mean, that's really why I got married and, mm. and to my best friend. I was friend. just going to move to that. Yeah, I it's just... really why I got married to my best friend who was a gay man, you know, and uh, because I just couldn't, 
I, I couldn't do it anymore. I was tired. And it goes back to that feeling of safety. You know, I didn't feel like I could do any more than I was doing. I'd been nominated for a Grammy for best rock vocal performance. And yet I couldn't get a record deal after that. Right. You know, right. it's. I was looking, I was looking at Spotify. And so you were nominated for a Grammy for uh, two songs that were in Greece. And I was laughing because I was looking at the downloads, right? So it was like 9 million downloads of seven, <laughs> what, 9 million for one and 7 million for yeah. the other. And I thought, you know, and that's only since Spotify started. That's not, that doesn't go to the $2.75, by the way, for, for 9 million. But anyway, go ahead. So, all right. So we, we got, a little bit off track because I want to get, I want to make sure we get to three things with enough attention paid to each one. Mm -hmm. So two men became critical among the men that became critical uh, to your life. Two were Bob and Dan crew. Mm -hmm. One Bob crew uh, became the man who it sounds like originally saw the potential in you and became your mentor and also led your way out of addiction. I mean, became part of your addiction and then led you out of addiction. And then Dan Crew, his brother, who became the husband you just referred to and the father of your two daughters. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the role that these two men played uh, in your life. Well, Bob, Bob Crew, who think Jersey Boys, even though his role is diminished in Jer Jersey Boys, but he discovered the Four Seasons, produced, wrote those records with Bob Gaudio, wrote those records with Bob Gaudio, produced, was one of the first independent record producers ever in the 60s. And so he discovered me. And... Um, this is before Elton John. And he, I started singing backup vocals on various albums that Bob was producing and records that Bob was producing. And through him, I met Dan, his brother, and uh, we became friendly. And uh, so two parts. One, the addiction part of it. I really had a very short career <laughs> as a drug addict and an alcoholic uh, spanning about two and a half years that was really I mean, I had it in me. Believe me, I had it in me. Mm -hmm. But I, I really lit the match when I got with Bob Crew and started being his gopher protege, I call it. And Bob taught me about the music business and, and introduced me to people like Jerry Slur, the great producer and, and co-founder of Atlantic Records and many, many other people. And um, so Bob really got me started in the music business. Dan, Again, I met through Bob when Dan came out to help Bob out of some business trouble and we became friends. And then, and Bob was trying to get sober to tie that in because he was a true alcoholic mm -hmm. and uh, not that I'm not, but he was classic and he was trying to get sober and then Dan got sober and then Dan really was the one, even though I was visiting the recovery rooms with both with Bob to try to encourage him. Uh, Dan then got sober and then it was through Dan that I finally relented and um, 
realized that I had a problem with more drugs than alcohol, I thought, but I am an alcoholic too. So both of those people were instrumental in my young career, but also threaded throughout my entire life. Obviously, I ended up marrying Dan Crew when Mm -hmm. we both had about three years of sobriety. And getting back to the safety thing and the retreating, I really, it was that I married him in 1979. I married Dan Crew in 1979. We were friends and he wanted to get married and I didn't. And, yeah. and um, he kept insisting and because we had the same values, we blah, blah, blah. And he was a gay man, is a gay man. He's still living. And finally I relented because I felt not because. Uh, Must have I, felt safe. Right, you were living in Westport? Yeah, yeah. well, we moved to Westport. We were living in Los Angeles at the time, and Dan was older than me by 16 years. He was a businessman. He was uh, steady. You know, we were both sober. And I was getting flip-flopped around by the music Mm -hmm. business. And I was getting the the wear the dangly earrings thing. And why can't you be more like a girl? And you know, we don't have enough room on our label. We already have this. And yeah, you've been nominated for a Grammy, but so what? We still don't have room for you. We don't know what to do with you is Mm -hmm. what the the overriding uh, fact was. So I married Dan. So you you get married, you move to Connecticut. Yep. Um, I actually know the street you lived on, which you <laughs> mentioned, because we lived in Westport and Wilton at about the same time you oh. did. Yeah, we could have been neighbors. We were on Ridgefield Road and oh, we were yeah. on Riverside Avenue. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, as I was reading that part, you you had two kids, uh, Jesse and, and Reed, and we'll talk about Jesse and Reed in 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 a few minutes, but you took off. You really took off and decided you weren't done trying to be a musician, despite now becoming a wife in the suburbs, the mother of two kids. And you nonetheless still had that burning desire. Did Dan at that time encourage you or discourage you? Uh, he did not ever um, blatantly discourage me. I think he, he uh, once he realized how burning my desire was, in other words, I couldn't, you know, once you're a creative, you're always a creative. I couldn't let go of this feeling that I, I was not done yet. I was not finished yet, that I had something in me that had to be expressed musically. And so Dan encouraged me for the most part when it really became clear that I had to follow through again on some of my musical wants. I could not, I had two kids. I, I am still a mother. You mm-hmm. know, I'm not a father. I'm a mother, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I had two kids. And it was, uh, I, I write about this a lot in the book, how tear in me, the, the split in me of being a mother and loving my children and wanting to be a mother, a full-time, always there, available parent, 
and the need to fulfill some creative desire. It was very, very difficult for me. Luckily, Dan was a good father. He was out, mm-hmm. he worked at home. So I could pursue some of my wants, but it was not without cost. Mm. So one of the heartbreaking parts of your story is you and Dan moved to Portland. Mm-hmm. You had these you know, two great kids, Reed and Jesse, and Jesse was diagnosed with Hodgkin's and passed away when she was 11. Yes. And having, I I lost a brother to cancer, and so we'll talk a little bit about the impact on family, but one of the things, A, just share with us what that was like. But when I read the lyrics, because I listened to every song on Mm. the album, uh, Somewhere Between Heaven and Earth, Mm -hmm. and I was struck by two things, Sid. One was the lyrics are extraordinary. I mean, they're extraordinary. They're poetic. They're powerful. They're beautiful. But the other thing that I was struck by is your voice on those songs does, in fact, sound a little more folk than rock. And I thought, well, that's surprising because you were always so clear about wanting to be a rock star and not a folk singer. Yet, I'm not. I don't know that much about music other than I love listening to it. But I was struck by the distinctness of that entire album, both the lyrics, the style of your singing, and the power of all of that music. Mm -hmm. That album stands alone, will always stand alone. Somewhere Between Heaven and Earth uh, was an album that was written in the first year and 10 months after the death of my daughter, Jessie. She died just three weeks after her 11th birthday in March of 1996, after three months of being diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease. And so that, that album, the whole story is in the book of how that album came to be. So I won't go through it here, but I did not set out to write an album after the death of my daughter. No. I I happened to write one song about three and a half months after her death called Somewhere Between Heaven and Earth. And it just, the word I use, and I can't use a different word, is it emerged out of me. It came out of me. And I had no pre-thought of writing a song. I just picked up my guitar just to, because I hadn't picked it up in three months since her death. And I started strumming and the song came out. And um, Almost like a rebirth was my observation. Well, what that one song, and the song was Somewhere Between Heaven and Earth, the title, which ended up being the title track of the, the album. And it's a song about meeting my daughter, Jessie, somewhere between heaven and earth. Somewhere I'm Mm -hmm. here, she's there where's the middle? And 
what that song did for me, and I say this in the book, and I describe this in the book, is I was horrified because I had just written the song about the death of my own child. And it was like, uh, almost like a nail in, I won't say the coffin, but it mm. was, it was a, another indication of the truth of the matter that my mm. daughter was indeed dead. That the, I reality. the reality. The reality of it. And at the same time, and here's where your thought about the rebirth comes in. At the same time, I had the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest little spark of life that that writing that song, the creativity of doing it or the connection of doing it or whatever I felt in my gut. Now, every bereaved parent on earth knows that the death of your child, the reality of the death of your child, the aftermath of the death of your child doesn't go away in mm. three months or 10 ever. years or 27 years, which it's been for me now. Not ever. Not ever. But there was this little spark in me that meant I was living. Mm. And what was I going to do with my life? And at that time, it wasn't a conscious thought. But three months later, I wrote another song. And then three months after that, I wrote another song. So I had three songs. I went to Nashville where I had, where I had my friends. I recorded them just to give me something to do. The, the story goes on. Then I ended up. So that album, Somewhere Between Heaven and Earth, as you say and rightly say, it stands alone in mm. everything I've ever done or will do. That album is my legacy. It doesn't mean I haven't written a good song since. I have. I've made some good records since. I've You've got, got an new, album coming out. In I've October. got an album coming out October twenty seventh on Kill Rock Stars Records. A new, my first as Sydney. You know, so I'm still making music, but that particular album was was it came from a place in me from the purest of pure places. That album, those songs came from a place in me that no other songs before or since have come. And it was this place of just absolute purity. It was absolute. There was no crafting involved, no thinking involved. It just, those songs emerged from my being almost as though they were already written and mm -hmm. had to come out of me. And the reason I say those songs are my legacy is because they have touched so many people on every continent on earth. And that's not an exaggeration. Mm. Uh, in the last 20, 24 years that it's been out, been released, I still, to this day, receive messages and letters and comments about that album, Helping Somebody Else who is a bereaved parent or who has lost an, another loved one. But it also is an album of hope. And I didn't know it at the time. I didn't think mm -hmm. about what I was writing about, uh, except that they were all moments in, there are 10 songs on that album. And every, every song is a moment in my grief about what I'm thinking of. There's a song on there called Better Than I've Ever Been, which is, about 
maybe, 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 maybe I'll become a better person through this. Mm. Maybe I'll be stronger. Maybe I can be of value in a different way in, uh, in life. Maybe. And it was my wish for myself at the time. And, uh, you know, it, it's come true. Sid, one of the songs on there, maybe my favorite song was As Long As You Love. Mm. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that I was struck by the difference in your singing voice. Right. And I, I haven't listened to all your songs, but the other thing that happens more on that album than on other songs I heard you perform was you start with no music. You start with only lyrics. And there was a there was a uh, bareness about that. There was a power about just not knocking out a song, not like mm-hmm. bellowing the lyrics, but they were just lyrics. And then the music came in. Was that that's just the way it worked? It wasn't deliberate. That first of all, in terms of the voice on that, my voice on that album. Again, going back to the writing of the songs, but also about the singing, there was no pretense. Mm. That song was, uh, that album was made because my daughter, Jessie, died. Died. It was not made to make a record to be in the music business, to, 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 to get a tour, to sell records, to, to be publicized. It wasn't made for any reason. And when I decided to make, when I knew I had enough songs and knew I had to, had to make an album out of those, thinking maybe it could help somebody, I didn't know I was going to get a record deal. Mm-hmm. It was made as a charity record for the State of Maine Children's Cancer Program. And so that album is the purest. The singing was just me. It was just Mm -hmm. me. And by the way, I just a thought about leading up to my singing on that album. I hadn't made a record in a long time before that album. And I had been coming to Nashville, where I now live, and writing songs for other people. And and singing with my acoustic guitar at the Bluebird Cafe and doing, doing other things before Jessie died. And from 1990 to 95, she died in 96. I was in Nashville for five years, just not pursuing a rock career, but for being a songwriter and singing. And so I was being, um, I have, was finding and had found a more natural part of me. My voice, I'm just going to say this one thing. My voice on my first album, Desire Wire, is not my natural voice. I mm. wanted you to Frankie Valley it. Right? right. My natural voice is a lower voice, which was even as a young girl, Mm-hmm. I was always an alto. I always sang in a more natural voice. My first few albums were not sung in a natural voice. And uh, I regret that, but I can't do anything about it. The songs were okay. Sid, but 
Sid, you know, maybe that's what was striking to me, that when I listened, you know, I probably listened to about 25 of your songs as preparing uh, for the conversation. And that that is what I think I heard as a listener, that that was an that was an unembellished Cindy or Sid or it was just an embell- mm-hmm. unembellished human being that was writing those songs and performing it. And as a listener, it was clear to me that that was different than yeah. listening to the other albums. Absolutely. In every phase, whether it was the performance, the production, the songwriting itself, it was all unembellished is a great word. It was all, uh, it, and it was all in service to the one premise. And the premise was Jesse. Yeah. The premise was these are songs. And by the way, every person who either played on the album, who was an, an engineer, assistant engineer, mixing engineer, you know, anybody who was on that singer, you know, anybody who helped me on that album knew exactly why they were there. Mm-hmm. They knew they were there because don't forget, I didn't have a record deal. This yeah. album was not made to be an album for the public. It was made because I needed to make it for myself. Yeah. And when it was done, I decided it was going to be a charity record to help other kids with cancer. I had no idea it was going to come out on a global level. So it was pure. And a gift. I mean, it, the, it, you know, as I, we won't have time to talk about like you going to Columbine after the school shooting there mm-hmm. or the fact that this funded a charity. But the other thing I thought about is I was, so I lost a brother. So I was in a family where, you know, parents were grieving and, I was the oldest of a bunch of kids, so my role was sub-parenting. But as I was reading the book, and I realized how much your other daughter, Reed, was there for you when you did transition at 61 years old, Mm -hmm. I thought, what was the impact on Reed? Because I know what it's like to all of a sudden, you sort of, you are... I don't mean this in a bad way. I don't feel maimed by this, but you become sort of incidental to the grieving that's going on with your parent or parents, plus you've lost a sibling. Mm -hmm. So what impact did all of this have on Reed? Well, obviously she has her own story to tell, but I was cognizant enough to know that I, to feel a whole separate grief for my daughter, Reed. And I knew that she had lost not only her sister and her only sister, there were no other children, her only sibling. I knew that she had not only lost Jesse, but she had lost her parents, both of them, as Mm. they once were. Because as you know, uh, from your own experience, you know, in observing your parents, nothing is ever the same. Hmm. And so I had a whole separate 
grief for Reed and Reed, uh, not to go into her story, but she was only, she was 13, about to turn 14 when, when Jesse died, which is a very critical time. And, and so she dealt with it in different ways. She was depressed. She, she was in denial in the early parts. She acted out later on in her teens, not until she left, left home, but she did. She still, you know, I mean, we all have, have issues around all of it. She's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's complicated. Let's put it that way. It's complicated. Yeah. And Reed has not had an easy, her life has been complicated and she'll write her own book someday, probably. I hope yeah. I'm dead by that time. <laughs> yeah, you. we never know. want to know what our kids have no, to say. No, I, I, I don't want to read it. But, um, but she has a book in her about her own life with her parents, one, one of whom was gay, one was uh, a closeted transgender. I use that word closeted. I wasn't really, but I wasn't out yeah. as a trans person. And, you know, losing her sister at 13 years old, I mean, she struggles. She struggles certain parts of her life and she thrives in other parts. And uh, uh, I have we four all? beautiful grandchildren. Um, exactly. We all do. Are, are all four grandchildren reads or are some from Chloe, your stepdaughter? No, no. All, all are reads. All are reads. Uh, two different fathers, two younger, two older, the two the older girls are one father and the two younger boys are another. And, and Chloe, she's still in Maine, right? She's still in Maine. And yeah, Chloe, my stepdaughter, girl. is in Chicago, who's 26 and 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 not married. So, Sid, no, we, sadly, because yeah. you and I could talk for a long time and <laughs> there's a, a lot to cover, but I want to make sure that we cover a very pivotal part of your life because I talk about in the introduction how you've experienced such highs and lows and you are uh, now married uh, to a woman by the name of Tanya and you made the decision at 61 years old to transition to a man. Mm -hmm. And so that's a question, you know, given your age, there are lots of people in your position who weren't afforded this possibility or afforded it technologically or afforded it emotionally or would have never given themselves permission to transition ever. So walk us through what drove that decision ultimately, because you had spent 40 adult years, 61 whole life years, sort of adapting Mm -hmm. in some way to the fact that you were in the wrong body. And, you know, it's hard for me to understand what that even feels like. Mm -hmm. So share with us how you ultimately, at that point in time, made the decision to take the leap. Well, if you had told me a day before I had the <laughs> the uh, knock on the head, I don't know what to call it. It wasn't an epiphany because I knew who I was. Mm-hmm. But the impetus, I guess, 
if you had told me a day before that I would do it, I would have said you were crazy because I had kind of settled in, as you say, to being who I was. I was Cindy Bullens. I was androgynous still. You know, I was getting older, but I had my life and, you know, I was single. Mm -hmm. Dan and I had been long divorced. I was single. I had two granddaughters across the street, you know, and uh, read and living a simple life in Maine. And uh, uh, I'll try to keep this short. A friend of mine who I had kind of mentored a few years before contacted me and said that she, now he, had transitioned. And that phone call, just knocked me for a loop. Here was somebody who I actually knew as a human being, as a woman who was now living her life as a man and becoming a him. And for some reason, I I think, I like to say it was kind of that, a psychic moment, uh, 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 a moment in time where I had the psychic space to receive this information. It was to receive this possibility. I was single. I had no, uh, you know, obligations other than to myself at the time. I was not grieving Jesse in that abject way. I was just living my life very simply and doing some music and being on the road and doing some stuff with my trio, the refugees and, working at the Y part-time, having a ball, doing something different and living in Maine that I love. And suddenly this idea that it was even possible came to me through my friend and I could not shut it off. It blew me away. I literally, as I say in the book, fell to my knees and sobbed. And that is the truth. And it was like a release. I had never, and to your, to sum it up, I had never dealt with that one primary part of me fully. And so I knew I had to deal with it fully now. And what it led me to with a lot of trepidation, as is talked about in the book, a lot of back and forth was to finally transition. And we could get into a whole thing, which we won't, about the spectrum of gender and all that stuff. But for me, I knew without a shadow of a doubt, well, I shouldn't say without a shadow of a doubt. I know who I am. I knew I was a male in a female body. Mm. There isn't a part of me then or now that didn't know that I am. A guy, yeah. And ask my daughter, ask my friends, ask my. Well, Sid, one of the things that I was struck by, you early in the book talk about being on Shabig Island with your friend Harry, with your Hendy, shirt yeah, Hendy, Hendy. What Webb. was his name? Hendy, Hendy. <laughs> Henderson, and then. And what I'd like you to do is describe what occurred to you then and then bring it forward to when you had your top surgery, your top surgery and what that what that coming together of the 12 year old you with the 61 year old you felt like. I was on Shabig Island in Maine. 
when I was 12 years old and I never wore a shirt ever. In the summertime, if it was warm enough, I didn't have a shirt on. And one day I was playing across the street with my friend Hendy Webb and we were wrestling on the grass and I fell onto my back and my right hand brushed against my left nipple and I felt a tiny little bump. And I was horrified. I was horrified. I got up, I went across the street into my house, put on a t-shirt and was crushed because Mm. I said, now I'm going to have to pretend to be a girl for the rest of my life. And I did. (laughs) I did. And the best I could, it wasn't a very good pretending to be a girl for the rest of my life, but I did the best I could. And then fast forward to to, uh, 11 years ago, when I decided to have top surgery, what they call top surgery, which is for trans men removing your, your breast tissue and giving you a a man chest basically. Um, And it was sitting in the chair and the, what they call the reveal where the bandages are being taken off after a week of being um, bandaged, your chest being bandaged after the surgery. Um, They sit you in front of a mirror and the, 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 the bandages are being taken off, you know, the doctors rock walking around and even with all the redness and the rash and the, 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 the stitches and everything else, I saw myself for the first time as who I felt I was. Mm-hmm. I hated my breasts because they weren't mine. My daughter, I want to say this one little thing, if you'll let me. Before the morning before the surgery, my daughter Reed was with me in Florida to have the surgery. And the morning before I went in, or the morning of the day I went in, Reed and I did a little blessing for my breasts. Because what my breasts, the the function that my breasts performed was breastfeeding both Mm -hmm. of my children, which I loved. I loved it. I felt at one, at peace. I felt like they that my breasts were being used for the purpose that they, that I had them for. I was nurturing my babies and I loved it. Mm. So that was the function, the only function that my breasts served. And we wanted to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. And so we did. Yeah. And then once they were gone, I have not regretted it for one single second. Mm. And that, proves to me and proves to some of my women friends who, my wife, no woman, female wants to lose their breasts. It's part of their identity. Yeah. And so for me, it was part of the proof that I am who I am. I have always been a man in a woman's body. And now I get to live in the body as much as possible that I like. Yeah. Sid, you know, I really, we've been talking um, with Sid Bullens, uh, the author of Transelectric, My Life is a Cosmic 
rock star. And there are, you know, so many threads of conversations that we could have had more about music, um, more about the fact that you're living in a state that, are you illegal in that state? Yeah, pretty much. They'd like me to be illegal and annihilated. Yeah. Yeah. You know, about the whole movement and decisions for kids. And, and uh, I mean, there's a million things we could be uh, talking about and hopefully our listeners will read your book and gain even more insight into your story, which, you know, for me at the end of the day, Sid, what I would say the, the, so much of your story struck me as, which sounds trite, but is each of us finding the way to be holy who we are. In your case, it meaning transitioning for others. It means, you know, being a different style of person or a different career or whatever. But the power, just the sheer power of being able to be yourself is what was a big takeaway for me in in reading the book. So thank you for writing it. Thank mm. you for joining me on uh, Just the Right Book. And so the album is called Walking, is it? What's the name of the album? No, the album's called out? Little Piece Little Pieces. It's called oh, Little, Little Pieces. Pieces. Why did I think it was walking? Yeah, well, it walking through this world was oh, right. the, the prior title. So it's it's called Little Pieces. It's coming out on October 27th on Kill Rock Stars Nashville imprint. And we're uh we're very excited. I'm very excited about it. All right. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to hearing about it. And thanks again. And and Sid. Talk to Tanya. Move back to Maine. It's time. <laughs> I know. I've got to. <laughs> enough with this Tennessee. Eno- enough with Tennessee. Uh, but for the Tennessee listeners, pick up the book. Parnassus books in Tennessee is good, too. But, yeah, they're um, great. They're great. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I thank you so much for having me, Roxanne. It's been a, a, a total pleasure. And uh, say hi to John for me. I will. Take care. Be well. <laughs> thank you. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast, and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. 
I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.